John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not hear, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There are plenty of famous Bible passages, even in the unbelieving world. They know, judge not, lest ye be judged. Turn the other cheek. The story, story like Solomon's judgment to split the baby. But probably no other is as well known as for God so loved the world. Even people who don't know the verse know the reference, John 3.16. In my experience, the more well-known a Bible verse or story is, the more likely it is to be taken out of context. It's true of the other passages I listed, and it's also true of John 3.16. After all, of the people who know this verse or know of this verse, how many do you think know that Jesus said these words to the Pharisee Nicodemus? John 3 is overflowing with theological importance. You could preach a verse at a time. Some are of the opinion that it is the most theologically rich chapter in the New Testament. Given that, and my favorite motto from seminary, small theologians should choose small passages, taking 21 verses together seems like madness. 
especially given how easy it is to split this into two sections, as most of your Bibles have probably done. But John 3.16, as remarkable a claim as it is, isn't made in a vacuum. Verses 14 through 21 are part of a larger conversation, and the rest of that conversation matters. What prompts Jesus to utter this tribute to God's love is as important as the claim itself. What is it about Nicodemus? What is it about their conversation that gives rise to such powerful words? Of course, to put the passage in its full context, we have to go further, backwards and forwards, than even that. At the end of last week's passage in chapter 2, we read, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And as if to prove this claim, John now records a series of conversations between Jesus and other people, conversations with very different kinds of people. We'll sometimes look at someone or have brief exposure to them and say, oh, I know that type, as we have or think we have some insight into a particular personality, a particular kind of person. Jesus claims to know all men. He knows Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the official with the dying son, and the lame man by the pool. Jesus is able to see and speak into their hearts immediately. Seeing all of these together really shows the folly of trying to hide what's in our hearts from God, doesn't it? Whatever is there, he knows it. It's much better to bring it to him directly. If our hearts need healing, he'll provide healing. And if our hearts need something else, well, enter Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. This first interaction is directly related to what Jesus just lamented. People who believe in the signs more than they believe in Jesus. Without the context, it could seem like a positive interaction. Nicodemus is polite and respectful. He uses an honorific rabbi. He praises Jesus. He's basically inviting him to become, be one of them, a Pharisee, a teacher of the people, to be with the religious in crowd. But Jesus sees into his heart. Seeing Jesus' signs, the Pharisees were willing to accept him as a God-ordained teacher. In most cases, that would be okay. The Old Testament prophets, their ministries were validated by the performance of signs, and that's how the apostolic ministry will be validated as well. Once Jesus ascends, he gives the apostles miraculous gifts to prove that they are of God. It's the primary function of these gifts in the New Testament, and it explains why they don't continue past the apostles. Miracles validate the messenger. And that's really important when the messenger is speaking and writing God's infallible word. Once we have that word recorded and preserved in Holy Scripture, the function is no longer necessary, and therefore neither are the signs that confirm them. 
So given the tone that most people imagine must surround John 3.16, given the polite respectfulness of Nicodemus' approach to Jesus, verses 3 and 4 are a bit jarring. As with his response to Mary at the wedding, Jesus is firm and direct. His ways are confusing and don't always appear loving. But he tells you, remember, he's going after hearts and he knows what's required to get to them. He goes right after Nicodemus's heart. He doesn't thank him for the compliment. He doesn't show any enthusiasm for the invitation to join the Pharisees. Instead, he tells him plainly that everything you believe is wrong. Your worldview is wrong. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Today, within Christianity, we use the terms cultural Christian or nominal Christian to describe someone who calls themselves a Christian but doesn't believe regeneration, the change of heart by God, is necessary. Or those who think that God's word offers a good moral code but not a complete change of life that starts on the inside. That would be Nicodemus. As a Pharisee, he believed that all except the most sinful and wicked Jews would inherit the kingdom of God. He believed that nothing special was necessary, nothing life-altering, just be a decent Jew. And all the works-based perversions of Christianity are built on the same perspective. People are realists. They know that we're all sinners. After all, nobody's perfect. So people don't hesitate to abandon the standard of perfect. And not just on their own behalf, they abandon abandon it on God's behalf. Surely God is just looking for good enough. Whether by good words, religious observance, or penance, just try to do more good than bad. Oh, and be sincere while you're doing it all. That's Nicodemus. And so Jesus, who knows what is in all men, looks at him and says directly, that won't work. The only way you can inherit the kingdom is to be born again. And Nicodemus is deeply troubled. He doesn't even know what that means. He responds incredulously. It sounds like a physical impossibility. And after all, the nerve of this guy, he came to Jesus under what he intends as a flag of truce. And Jesus tells him that he's far from the kingdom of God. Like Mary at the wedding, he assumed he could approach Jesus on his own terms. Nicodemus approached Jesus with the perspective of what he and the Pharisees could do for God, of what they had to offer. We can provide you with credibility, with respectability. We can get you an audience. We can validate your authority. Look at all I bring to the table. That's Nicodemus' heart. God is approached by hearts this way all the time, still today. Many come to him seeking salvation on their own terms and offering him their version of a bargain for life. 
Here's what I'll give you. Here's what I ask in return. You can have these parts of my life, but not those. I'll go this far, and you, God, should accept that as good enough. Even now, I, and perhaps you, approach God this way. Not about salvation, but about providence. God, I know what you want in this situation. I know what's best. Let me do it my way. God, give me what I need rather than what you think I need. Last week, from the previous passage, we saw this with regards to worship. People approached God as if he should simply be delighted that anyone wants to worship him at all. After all, look at all these people who simply ignore God. He can't get all bent out of shape about how I worship or how I think about worship. After all, look at all I bring to the table. And so Nicodemus pushes back. He effectively says, you can't be serious. And that's why Jesus says, truly, truly, to reveal that, yes, he is serious. What he's about to say is pure truth. And he explains that this rebirth is not of the flesh. The birth that leads to the kingdom of God comes by water and by spirit. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He understands the Old Testament well, so Jesus speaks to him in Old Testament terms. Nicodemus wouldn't have hesitated for a moment to understand what Jesus meant by this. For in the Old Testament, water purifies and the spirit makes alive. Sin has made us unclean and rebirth by water makes us pure again. And sin has brought death and rebirth by the spirit makes us alive. So he understands and he's beside himself. Pharisees don't mind that God's kingdom has requirements for admission. They actually like that it's an exclusive club where some are in and others are out. But those requirements should be about genealogy and about ritual and about obedience. The things you can offer God. The things you can see. Jesus, failing to acknowledge any such thing, emphasizes only purification and new life by the Spirit. The things you can't see, the things like wind you only see by its effect, the things that come from God, and the only things that make anyone ready for his kingdom. Yes, if someone is to inherit the kingdom of God, God must work to make them born again. Kids, it's easy to think like Nicodemus. You know, when people in the church talk about the Pharisees, we often tend to talk about them like they're really, really wicked. But it's tricky because on the outside, following God's law and participating in worship, the Pharisees looked really, really good. Nicodemus knew the Bible well. He taught it. He was involved in the church, worshipped the right ways. If you followed him around for a week or two, you'd probably think this is one of the holiest guys you've ever met. But here, Jesus says that the way Nicodemus is going will never get him into the kingdom. And if he can't get in with all the things that he knew and with all the things that he did right, 
then what hope do we have of getting in through those means? None. And that's why he asked the question of verse 9. How can these things be? That's the question everyone should ask when they encounter Christianity. And it's a question we ask in two different ways, two different tones of voice. Here, Nicodemus asks in principled unbelief. What Jesus is saying conflicts with everything he knows, with everything he believes about God. Instead of congratulating him for being so wise and so holy, Jesus chastises him. You're a teacher, but you don't even know what you teach. Jesus goes right after his self-righteous heart. And all of us know that is a very difficult thing to accept. Verses 10 and 11 could be an entire separate mini-sermon given to those of us who teach. Teachers should know what they're talking about. And yet right doctrine apart from the Spirit is powerless. Teachers must be willing to receive instruction and they must be willing to be changed by the Spirit of God. And all this is what Jesus is offering Nicodemus. And he resists. How can these things be? But don't judge him too harshly because he resists because receiving it would be laying down his self-righteousness. It would be laying down the offense Jesus has caused him by his means and methods. To be taught and to be changed by God is a grueling endeavor. But if Nicodemus cannot accept these things, how can he ever hear and understand the heavenly instruction that Jesus is offering? After establishing his authority to teach heavenly things in verse 13, after all, he's been there. Jesus teaches two lessons from heaven. He starts with a lesson from the Old Testament. Since Nicodemus knows it well, and Jesus knows Nicodemus well, And he takes him back to a peculiar event recorded in Numbers 21. Israel, freed from slavery, delivered from the pursuing Pharaoh, fed with manna from heaven, is, you guessed it, grumbling against God. And for their disobedience and wickedness, God sends a plague of poisonous snakes. Yeah, you kids probably don't remember this plague. The poisonous snakes. And people start dying. And as happens when tragedy strikes, people suddenly get very serious about turning to God and asking him for deliverance from the plague. But God does what he always does. He does not chastise them. He offers salvation. God will always save those who turn to him for salvation. And here he does it by a very peculiar method. They're to make a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole. And Moses is to hold up the pole before the people. And anyone who is bitten by one of the snakes is to lift their eyes to the pole And by doing so, in faith that God will save them, they will be saved. 
Now, what would an unbeliever ask upon hearing this story? How can these things be? Just like Nicodemus did. As a means of salvation, it doesn't make any sense. The people are grumbling and deserving of wrath and judgment. Just smite them already. Or if you're going to save them, make them do something. Just look at the pole and trust God. No good works, no penance, nothing they offer or bring to the table. God's going to save them just because of faith. It doesn't make any sense. And so even in the wilderness, even in the story I just told, some bitten by serpents lifted their eyes in faith to the pole and were saved. And some still refused. The lesson from heaven is Jesus connecting the story to the purpose of his coming. And I know you see it. He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the greater and the fuller version of Moses' pole of salvation. He would be raised up on the cross of Calvary and all who believe in him would be saved from death. Nicodemus' beliefs about salvation were so nicely packaged. They were so manageable. But Jesus has torn them to shreds. He's shown the impossibility of salvation that way. You think you're good enough for God? You need cleansing from sin. You need resurrection from spiritual death. You think you know from genealogy or party who is in or who is out? But the Spirit of God is like the wind. It cannot be constrained. It blows where it wills. You think you understand. But only God gives understanding. And you think people inherit the kingdom by believing what you have said. Jesus, the one lifted up on the tree, he is the one who must be believed. And Nicodemus is undone. As a transaction of merit, he can make sense of salvation. That God accepts less than perfection is an understandable amount of grace. But that it's all grace? That it's the Savior's work in none of his? That his own efforts actually put him further from the kingdom? How can these things be? For God so loved the world. The second lesson of Jesus' lessons from heaven explains the nature of his coming. He condemns Nicodemus not for his evil doing, but for his self-righteousness, for his conviction that he can approach the kingdom on the basis of who he is and what he's done. And Jesus condemns him. So is that why Jesus is here, to condemn mankind? It could have been. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have fallen astray. It could have been. He certainly would have been right and just. 
That's why this lesson from heaven, John 3.16, is so astonishing. Last night, my friend Neil Stewart gave me his favorite outline of the verse. God loves the worst. He gives the most. And he asks the least. Note how this is exactly the opposite of what Nicodemus believes. Nicodemus believes that God demands a lot. And that he offers just a little help to do it. And then he loves those who do the best. But God loves the worst. He gives the most. And he asks the least. I bet there are ways where Nicodemus' faulty perspective has crept into your own thinking as well. And we, like Nicodemus, need to hear Jesus when he sets the record straight. We need the Spirit to remind us that our condition prior to Jesus' coming was not life but death. It was not freedom, it was condemnation. And Jesus, the righteous judge, could have come into the world to condemn those who by their own unbelief were already condemned. But that's not what God sent him to do. Why? For God so loved the world. The remarkable love of John 3.16 isn't that Jesus came into the world. It's that Jesus came into the world to save. Now Jesus does go on to affirm that those who believe, who have been reborn of water and spirit, will also be changed. They'll learn to love the light. They'll do good works. On the outside, their lives could begin to look more like Nicodemus. But the power and the motivation are what change. We can't please God in our own strength, so he gives us his. And we can't do good to glorify ourselves. And so we walk in the good works that he prepared for us. As a church that emphasizes growth by grace, sanctification, and the application of the Bible to our daily lives, texts like this are really good to make sure we aren't losing sight of what must come first. Before we please God, we must be reborn by God. Before we can apply the word to our lives, the Spirit must give us the eyes of faith to see and to understand. Self-righteousness is always looking for an in. Maybe it starts by how we judge ourselves compared to others. Or maybe it starts by accusing God that he hasn't given us what we deserve. Works are always trying to sneak in the back door. Satan loves to puff you up so that he can either destroy you in your pride or magnify your humiliation when you fail. Nicodemus, by worldly standards, was a great guy. But he was far from God. And if we're going to be used by God to point others to Christ... We need the lessons of heaven. There are not many ways by which someone inherits the kingdom. 
there is one way. And if that way was good works and self-righteousness, no one would see God. If it was perfect religious observance, likewise. And if it were sincerity, we'd be more likely to see the great pumpkin than the kingdom of heaven. People need to see the hope we have within us. They need to see our good works. They need to see our perseverance through unbearable pain. They need to see our love for the light rather than the darkness. And when they ask, how can these things be? They need to hear our answer that begins not with ourselves, but for God so loved the world.